Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Yes. It's 1880 in America, and you can feel the excitement of Gilded Age riches in the air. It's been 15 years since the United States nearly tore itself apart during the Civil War, and everyone is ready to put the ghosts of 600,000 dead behind them and make some money. And the beauty is, in this industrial economic explosion, anybody can become a millionaire. All you need is an angle. It's early afternoon at the British consulate in Philadelphia. In walks a man. He's arrived unannounced. By the look on his face, he's got an angle. He says his name is James McClintock. Who? He's an American, of course. Says that during the Civil War, he designed submarines and explosives. Maybe the Queen, Queen Victoria, might be interested in his services. The consular officers aren't impressed. Who does this guy think he is? Sorry, they say. Not interested. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. McClintock shrugs. No problem. He'll get plenty of money from the Queen's enemies, selling them his killing machines instead. Money's money, right? This makes the officers a little nervous. They could be making a very big mistake. Maybe they shouldn't send this James McClintock packing quite yet. Come with us, they say, and he's ushered into a back room. The consul arrives. Maybe Mr. McClintock could explain what he meant by getting money from the Queen's enemies? Well, sure. That's why he's here. He tells the consul that he's been building explosives for the Irish, who are rebelling against English rule. But he'd be willing to sabotage his own work for a price. The consul needs to give this some thought. It's complicated. They take a few days to think it over and dispatch a consulate worker to find out all he can about this McClintock fellow. And then it suddenly gets more complicated when the consulate worker comes back. He says that McClintock is an inventor, actually a really good one. He is responsible for designing the very first submarine to sink an enemy vessel in battle. That's right, the world-famous H.L. Hunley used by the Confederate Army to sink the Union's naval warship, the USS Housatonic, during the Civil War. And from what he can tell, he and his partners have struck again, inventing a, well, a death ray, really. But that's not even the strangest thing. You see, 
And again, he's just reporting what he's heard. So keep that in mind. But James McClintock was killed last year in an explosion in Boston Harbor. He's dead. McClintock flashes a wry smile. I see that my reputation precedes me. This is a puzzle. If James McClintock is dead, then who the heck is this snide person standing ever so pompously in the British embassy? Could it be that McClintock faked his own death only to re-emerge one day to help protect the Queen? Mystery shrouds James McClintock in supposed death almost as much as it did in life. But if there's one thing this strange scene reveals that was consistent throughout his life, James McClintock wanted to light the world on fire in more ways than one. And he was really good at it. But who was the true James McClintock? This is the incredible true story of genius, betrayal, oh, and explosions. Lots and lots of explosions. History consists of heroes and villains, and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid, but while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait, you'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Let's begin. It's the 1830s. 30 years before the American Civil War, there isn't much known about James McClintock's childhood, except that he grows up deep in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, for a little at least. With a fire in his belly and a gleam in his eye, young James leaves home as a teenager with only a suitcase and a dream. That dream? The freedom of the Big Muddy itself, the old Mississippi River. What is he running from? Only James and God know, and neither of them are talking. Like a young Mark Twain himself, McClintock earns his stripes as a steamboat captain. Some even saying, quote, the youngest on the entire river. Life on the river is full of adventure, sure, but it's also very lonely and frightening, especially for a child runaway. James's only parents? The hard gambling and drinking men who also call the river their home. And their main lesson? You're alone in this world, James, and the only person you owe any loyalty to is yourself. Not really anything you would hear during a sweet, teachable moment during an episode of Full House, but for McClintock, this lesson meant survival, and it would guide him for the rest of his life. With that said, let's flash forward, shall we? It's 1861. 
In the very early days of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln establishes a naval blockade of the seaports in the Confederate States to prevent goods from coming in or leaving the breakaway states. It's obvious that this will be a devastating problem for the Confederacy, unless they do something about it. The Confederate government has a plan. It offers a bounty, $50,000 for anyone who sinks a Union warship. We're talking more than two million of today's dollars. Something about this proposition intrigues a 30-something James McClintock. Well, actually, it's no mystery what intrigues him. It's the money. You got that, right? You see, since becoming a steamboat captain, young James has started cultivating his almost prodigious knack for engineering and inventing. Sinking a Union warship is certainly in his wheelhouse. He knows he can do it. But wait, why sink only one boat? when you can sink all of them. McClintock teams up with two men named Horace Hunley and Baxter Wilson. They are going to design something so revolutionary, it will make old Poseidon himself drop jaw and all. Yup, a war submarine. The concept of the submarine has been around for centuries, but to date, no one has ever successfully built one to sink another ship during battle. McClintock not only wants this honor, he needs it, if only for the financial reward alone. Of course, by doing this, it isn't lost on him that he'll be aiding and abetting his country's sworn enemy. Sure, McClintock spent his formative years in the South, particularly New Orleans, but it's impossible to ignore that he's an Ohio boy by blood. Building a weapon that will surely kill boys from the North is not only an act of treason, it's an act against God. But, hardened by his childhood sense of looking out for number one, and blinded by cold, hard cash, McClintock shrugs it off and starts hammering away. Hunley, one of the two men McClintock teams up with to build the submarine, is a New Orleans lawyer. And he sure has quite a bit of money, because he invests about $30,000, about a million bucks in today's money, to get the project going. But it doesn't go smoothly. They have to abandon one version of the submarine in Lake Pontchartrain, Louisiana, because they're afraid the Union Army might capture it. Another sinks in the rough seas off the coast of Alabama. But finally, after two years of work, the trio is confident that they've figured it out. On the big day, the three men stand on a dock jutting out into Mobile Bay. This is the moment. With them stands Admiral Franklin Buchanan, the commander of the Confederate Navy. All right, no pressure. Except there is. There's a lot of pressure. Because while collecting a $50,000 bounty, $1.7 million in today's money, would of course be nice, it would be even better to sell the submarine itself. That's what McClintock and friends want to see happen today. They just need to impress Admiral Buchanan first. Needless to say, a lot is at stake. It's go time. The men watch as a ripple of water moves steadily before them. Below the surface, nine men are crammed into a 40-foot-long, four-foot-high tube. It's cramped. Hopefully, no one is claustrophobic. One man serves as the driver, while the other eight sweat it out, spinning what are essentially hand-powered bicycle pedals to turn the propeller. Also on board, explosives, lots of them. McClintock had designed these explosives himself. He's excited to see them in action, and more importantly, 
for Admiral Buchanan to see them. The explosive device is called a spar torpedo. What's a spar torpedo? I'm glad you asked. A spar torpedo is a rod that extends from the tip of the submarine. At the end of the rod are explosives. The submarine taps the ship with the spar torpedo and... Except underwater, of course. And that's just what happens at the demonstration as the three inventors and Admiral Buchanan watch. The submarine approaches an old barge, hits it with the spar torpedo, and blows a hole through its side. The barge lists and sinks. Handshakes all around. And the amazing thing is that even in broad daylight, it's very difficult to see the submarine moving underwater. At night, it'll be nearly invisible. This changes everything. The Union blockade, they all feel sure, will be broken in a matter of days. We'll take it, Admiral Buchanan says, and the submarine is loaded onto a train bound for Charleston, South Carolina. McClintock and his friends, Hundley and Wilson, are about to be wealthy men. Or are they? Because when someone says, we'll take it, it might mean that they are agreeing to your deal... But it can also mean that they are literally going to take it away from you. For nothing. I think you see where this is heading. When the train carrying the submarine arrives in Charleston, the Confederate government seizes it from the three inventors. Anyway, you have to think that McClintock, Hunley, and Wilson would have been pretty unhappy about this turn of events. But, and this is kind of weird, all three men stay with the project. They're all paid to continue to develop and operate their, well, it isn't theirs anymore, but the submarine. Maybe they think this is the only way they can see a return on their investment. So after all of this, is the submarine any good? It does sink one Union ship, the Housatonic, and it kills 26 people. But 21 of those fatalities are none other than Confederate soldiers killed in accidents while operating the submarine. The self-destruction is so bad that Hunley himself dies in one of those accidents. He's aboard when the submarine sinks to the bottom. It's recovered three weeks later, and what they find inside is grisly. A report at the time said, quote, the unfortunate men were contorted into all kinds of horrible attitudes some clutching candles, evidently attempting to force open the manholes, others lying in the bottom, tightly grappled together, and the blackened faces of all presented the expression of their despair and agony. The damage has been done. McClintock's creation just murdered 26 people. To put it in perspective, that's nine more people than Jeffrey Dahmer ever killed. McClintock is heartbroken to say the least. No, not for the dozens of children who will never see their fathers again. For something far more important. His reputation. Sure, his invention works, but it may also kill the very people using it. That's like designing a vacuum cleaner that rips off and sucks up the user's clothes every time they want to clean their living room. Or something like that. Anyway... It certainly doesn't exactly scream customer satisfaction. But remember, these are strange times, and miraculously, people are so impressed by the Housatonic's sinking that McClintock starts 
earning reputation points. People in the military know his name. The Confederate war machine is hungry for his ideas. And McClintock stands to make a lot of money. It's 1865. What could go wrong? Well, to start with, the Confederacy loses the war. That doesn't help him. McClintock bet on the wrong horse and is now pretty sure he'll be tried for treason if he doesn't lay low for a while. So, like a true survivor, that's what he does. For eight years, to be exact. It's 1873. McClintock is back near where he grew up, this time in New Albany, Indiana, on the banks of the mighty Ohio River. He's using some of his experience with submarines to run a dredge boat to scoop up loot from the bottom of the river and then pawn for money. He's keeping a super low profile. When the war ends, McClintock still has his submarine designs. But what can he do with them? He has a record of working for the Confederates and worries that if he contacts the U.S. Navy, he might be put on trial for his role in the war. So he puts his ambitions for being a millionaire war profiteer on the side for a while and decides to settle down, gets married, and has three daughters. But there's a funny thing about people like good old James McClintock. You can take them out of the war, but you can't take the war out of them. As much as he tries to be happy, living the simple life, dredging, there's an itch he just has to scratch. Risking committing treason, yet again, McClintock arranges for a meeting with the officers of the Canadian Navy. Why not? And his presentation is impressive. He has, after all, designs for a submarine that actually works. It sank a ship. The Canadian officers listen to his pitch, we're guessing rather politely, and then deliver their verdict. No way. Why? Can it be that a submarine that kills four times as many people in accidents as it does enemies may not seem worth buying? Again, we're just guessing here. So... Rejected by the Canadian Navy and too scared to contact the U.S. Navy for fear of the consequences of his involvement with the South in the Civil War, McClintock returns to his home on the Ohio River to dredge. And for the next six years, dredge he does until his business fails. You see, dredging relies on boats to sink so that they can be salvaged. And riverboats aren't sinking as often these days. Definitely not as often as McClintock's submarines. It's time for something different for our dear profiteer. Forty years earlier, staring up at the stars as he laid face up on his riverboat floating down the Mississippi, a teenage James McClintock knew that he was meant for great things, historic things. Now, McClintock is facing a pretty big fork in the road. Sure, he's had his setbacks, but he did something momentous, something no inventor has ever done built a submarine that actually sank an enemy warship in battle. He can't stop now. It wouldn't be fair to himself, his family, history. Perhaps he just needs the right team. A couple of men whose specialties can complement his own to collectively build a weapon so mighty and deadly it will make or break all the wars of the future. And even more importantly, line his pockets and give him the one thing that has eluded him his whole life, security. But who are these men? Who will be the peanut butter and jelly to McClintock's white bread, completing the most deliciously deadly sandwich imaginable? Well, 
They are none other than George Holgate and J.C. Wingard. Well, let's leave McClintock land momentarily to learn a little bit more about his fellow scallywags. Let's start with George Holgate. Born a Scotsman, Holgate relocated to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and was, and it's hard to believe this was an actual job, a freelance bomb maker. He sold people bombs. What his local paper, the Philadelphia Record, called Infernal Machines. Doesn't that sound a little sketchy? Not to Holgate, apparently. He said about being a freelance bomb maker, quote, I no more ask a man whether he proposes to blow up a czar or set fire to a palace than a gunsmith asks his customers whether they are about to commit murder. Maybe his customers were going to use their bombs to hunt deer. Who can say? It probably won't surprise you to learn that Holgate was also a two-bit con man with numerous, ahem, inventions. Inventions? Well, he created a machine that used injections of ozone to keep food fresh for weeks. Fruit, vegetables, beef, all of it. It's because of him that today we all own ozone infusers. Or not. He also invented a hat bomb with dynamite sewn into it and a fuse wrapped around the brim. What could go wrong? And last but not least, a watch that released a chemical that smelled like cayenne pepper and killed anyone within 100 feet. Did this include the person wearing the watch? Was that why it didn't catch on? Believe it or not, despite these awesome and definitely functional inventions, Holgate somehow hasn't struck it rich, yet. Which brings us to J.C. Wingard, who is quite a character himself. In the 1850s, Wingard could be found in New Orleans, working as a faith healer and doing what he called spirit drawings. According to him, he would be possessed by spirits who would communicate through his hands. Wingard would write messages in a language that he claimed not to know. Sure. Anyway, when the Civil War started, Wingard saw an opportunity. He came up with an idea for a kind of machine gun. The project never really got off the ground, but it seems as though Wingard's real talent was for self-promotion. He pushed his firearm idea so hard that even though it was never made, people knew his name. Were those people surprised to see the word professor in front of his name when he resurfaced in 1876? Maybe, maybe not. But he got their attention because he claimed that he had created a death ray. He called it the Nameless Force. According to Wingard, and there's really no reason to believe him, He'd devised a weapon that could destroy enemy ships from up to five miles away. Amazing, if true. Look, this was the kind of thing that had to be seen to be believed. So, Wingard put on a demonstration in his hometown of New Orleans. And it failed. He tried again. It failed again. Maybe the third time would be a charm. It couldn't be any worse. A newspaper account of an earlier attempt had even called it the nameless farce. Yikes. So, Wingard invited a, quote, committee of gentlemen. Picture men in waistcoats with elaborate mustaches, mutton-chop sideburns, and top hats. Ready for some death ray action. And this time, 
it worked. A newspaper at the time published a report by the Committee of the Wingate Force, the Top Hat guys. It described the event. Quote, at 2.35 p.m., Mr. Wingard, standing alone in his boat, was seen to discharge something directed towards the vessel. We waited a moment, and seeing non-effect, were remarking our disappointment when the vessel suddenly blew up at an estimated interval of one and a half minutes. Clearly, it wasn't the fastest death ray in the world. Wingard was badly burned and had to row a mile back to shore where his burned hands were bound up in flour. Wingard warned the public to stay away from the vessel, which was still floating offshore. There are dangerous technologies at play. A group of newsboys thought that they'd take that risk. They boarded the wreckage and poked around. What was that below deck? It looked like gunpowder. And there was a wire that could be used to detonate the charge. What was going on? Well, here's a clue from one of the gentleman eyewitnesses. He said he, quote, discovered a slight volume of smoke arising from the skiff in which Mr. Wingard had taken his position. And immediately after, saw what appeared to be the trail of some substance or body passing out from the skiff toward the doomed schooner Augusta. Could Wingard have lit a fuse that burned from his skiff to the schooner? He left New Orleans in shame, but the world had not heard the last of J.C. Wingard, not by a long shot. And when he reemerges in 1879 to partner with Holgate and McClintock, what do you think he wants to do? You only get one guess. That's right. Blow up more stuff. Okay, let's bring McClintock back into the picture. He decides to connect with Holgate of the ozone beef and the I'll make you a bomb and you can do whatever you want with it fame and Wingard of the nameless force. They are quite a trio. In many ways, they're all alike. They all want to be important. They like to tinker and invent, and not just that, they like to wow the public with their creations. They all have a history of failures, rebirths. They don't give up, even when maybe they should. So, these three men are determined to put themselves back in the public eye. And I think this shouldn't be a surprise at this point. They think that making a new bomb to sink ships is just the ticket. It's gone so well for them up to this point. The idea of attacking ships from underwater seems like the best approach. But remember how many people died in accidents testing McClintock's submarine? Yeah? Well, so does McClintock. They figure they need to try something new. And they have just the idea. A new and improved, more destructive torpedo. If McClintock is dreaming of making a splash in history, no pun intended, a more effective torpedo is just the ticket. Think about it. The sinking of the Lusitania that would thrust America into World War I. American and Japanese hostilities in the Pacific theater. Much of modern naval warfare in the upcoming century will hinge upon McClintock's new brainchild. And he wants his name all over that patent. This is his chance for glory and riches. It has to work. With Wingard's salesmanship, Holgate's supply of explosives, and McClintock's submarine-creating background, this can't fail, right? Part one is complete. They believe they devised a better torpedo. And now, all they have to do is test it. That 
is exactly how James McClintock now finds himself in the ocean off the coast of Massachusetts in a dinghy filled with 35 pounds of dynamite. 35 pounds of dynamite. You might be thinking, is that a lot? Yes, it, it's a lot. Look, according to the internet, not around in McClintock's day, mind you, though it might have been useful for him, a half pound stick of dynamite can explode a cubic yard of rock. So if our math is correct, the amount that McClintock has in his boat can blow up about 70 cubic yards of rock. In fact, it has so much explosive power that McClintock boasts that the bomb can, quote, blow up any fleet in the world. With that kind of talk, they need big results. The pressure is on. Holgate and McClintock cautiously take a sailboat out to meet the dinghy stocked with the dynamite. At the beginning of the trip, McClintock feels a little seasick. Seeing this, Holgate has a good laugh at his expense. But because, you know, karma, as the sailboat comes to a rest by the dinghy, the jostling waves cause Holgate to get seasick too, giving McClintock the last laugh. But Holgate is really not feeling well. So he stays in the sailboat to return to shore, leaving McClintock to go on the dinghy with the local sailor who had rowed it out this far. The sailboat glides away with Holgate on board. Wingard, meanwhile, is towing an old ship that is set to be the target. The 35 pounds of dynamite in McClintock's boat is the torpedo, though it's mostly stationary, more like a mine. It's hard to know what exactly McClintock is thinking as he rows next to what they all consider a ticking time bomb. He must be frightened, but he knows in his heart he is the only one of the three who has enough expertise to accurately set it up. If this is going to work, fear cannot be part of the equation. McClintock will not allow it. He's come too far to be subverted by overcaution and cowardice. Really, he's fought too hard his entire life to let any emotion stop what destiny has in store for James McClintock. As the dynamite begins to smolder, one can only think what actually goes through James McClintock's head before it's blown clear off. Is it the childhood ghosts he was escaping that made him fend for himself as a teenage riverboat captain? Is it the hardened sense of survival and self-preservation that calcified in the Mississippi that ultimately allowed him to betray his country and be complicit in mass murder? Is it thoughts of his wife and three children who would now have to fend for themselves the way he was forced to as a child? Is it karma for the suffering that his magical creations caused? Or is it simply fear, an emotion he never allowed himself to have? As McClintock and the poor sailor's boat erupts in hellfire, its roar nearly capsizes Holgate and Wingard, who aren't actually watching at the time. The blast certainly gets their attention, though. As the smoke clears and they warily approach where the rowboat once was, they find nothing. No trace of the boat or McClintock or the unlucky sailor on board. What to do now? Being upstanding men of sound mind and fine character, Holgate and Wingard do the right thing. They immediately return to their hotel, gather up McClintock's possessions, and skip town. It's funny how these things work, because despite the detonation of enough explosives to destroy 70 cubic meters of rock, there isn't an investigation into the fiasco. 
There are no real witnesses. There are no bodies. Apparently, experimenting with explosives on a public waterway isn't the kind of thing that warrants attention. So, that's it. Wingard never turns up again in the public record. And for a faith healer turned death ray inventor turned torpedo hype man, that's saying something. Holgate returns home to Philadelphia. He wires McClintock's family to tell them what's happened. Sorry we blew up your husband and father. Accidents happen, and they especially happen to these guys. And there ends the story of the Confederate submarine designer, James McClintock, who was, ironically, fated to die in the test of a weapon of his own design. And, well, actually, the story only ends for about a year. Let's go back to the beginning of our story. Remember, someone calling themselves James McClintock has arrived unannounced at the British consulate and wants to sell his submarine and explosive expertise to the Queen. Well, not actually to the Queen herself, of course. The British Navy. Anyway, they tell him no, not interested, and he says, fine, your enemies are paying me pretty well anyway. And the men are like, hold on. Remember all that? Well, the enemies that he was referring to were Irish rebels. So, some background. In the 1870s, Irish nationalists had begun advocating for home rule. Since the 12th century, when the Normans came from England and conquered Ireland, the English and Irish had been in conflict. As time went on, some of the reasons behind the conflict changed, though they all stemmed from the English using parts of Ireland like a colony. Radical Irish separatists wanted to turn grievances about land reform into a rebellion. An Irish rebel who'd been exiled to America began to publicly raise money to make bombs, to smuggle back to England to commit acts of terrorism. He raised the equivalent of about one million of today's dollars. A dynamite school was opened in Brooklyn, New York. Now, who do you think might be a good teacher at a dynamite school? Yup, James McClintock. But surely he's dead. Well, Someone calling himself James McClintock is at the British consulate, and this is what he tells them. He says that he's been hired by the Irish to build a bomb that contains 35 pounds of explosives. Sound familiar? But can also fit inside a coat pocket. It can, he claims, quote, sink any ship in the British fleet. But he says he's willing to not build the bomb, that is if they meet his price. That price? $200 a month, which is about $5,000 today. In exchange, he will sabotage the Irish bomb-making efforts in Brooklyn, prevent any usable bomb from reaching English soil, and deliver the prototypes to the British. The deal is on the table. What do they think? Word of the proposal makes its way up the chain of command. It seems viable. Certainly McClintock, if that's who this is, is the person who can make this plan work. Eventually, the official nod is given. It is a go. And how does it work out? Well, it depends on who you are. It doesn't work out for the British. Five months later, they discover that the bombs from McClintock are duds. Yes, the bombs came from the Irish in Philadelphia, but no. When the British contacts send the delivered explosives to Britain for analysis, results show that they are fake. The British had paid McClintock over $60,000 in today's money and got nothing. However, it doesn't work out for the Irish 
either. They pay McClintock roughly the same amount as the British. And in return, McClintock devises fake bombs that he then steals from them. McClintock, or whoever he is, makes out well. He cons a total of more than $100,000 in today's money from the two opposing sides and disappears, never to be heard from, at least in the history books, again. In the end, it feels like a caper movie. Maybe James McClintock can be played by George Clooney, big mutton-chop sideburns. So who exactly walked into the British embassy with his nefarious plan? Could it actually have been the real James McClintock? Well, turns out... It's pretty darn possible. No one actually saw him die. Remember, both Holgate and Wingard were looking elsewhere when the explosion occurred. There was no investigation of the accident. And in his journey to build the better torpedo, he certainly racked up quite a bit of debt. Maybe this was his chance to escape his creditors. Maybe he was underwhelmed with his new partnership with Holgate and Wingard, or dissatisfied with his home life and opted for a less confrontational breakup. Like, faking his own death? But why then reappear without a scratch on him a little later, at the British Embassy of all places? Maybe, on second thought, the logic behind a staged demise doesn't really track here. Maybe it had to be somebody else. But who? Well, obviously we weren't there. But we have a sneaking suspicion. Remember George Holgate, McClintock's former partner? A shrewd Scotsman who came up with the exploding hat and the watch? He's the guy one newspaper described as, quote, the greatest maker of all manner of things that are liable to go off at a moment's notice. We sure remember him. Well, it turns out he lived in Philadelphia, where the bombs were taken from the Irish. Let's discuss his potential motive for a second, shall we? Known as a con man through and through, If there's one thing a proud Scotsman like Holgate likely despises more than the Irish, it's his pesky ancestral neighbors to the south, the English. Ever see Braveheart? Why hatch a plan to screw over one enemy when you can screw over both enemies? Surely, he has a resume for building bombs that don't work. Who knew that he could make a killing on it? Well, another type of killing on it. He also knows McClintock is dead, and hence has the perfect alias to hide behind, if it all blows up in his face. Oh, and as far as faking an American accent, who better at it than a member of the United Kingdom? Their actors are better at it than most Americans. Sure, this is just an educated guess, of course. While we may never know the whole truth about James McClintock's potential post-mortem hijinks, it's safe to say that his life reflected the time in which he lived. In a post-Civil War America, enough men had fought and died for their country it was time to look out for themselves and cash in on a Gilded Age boom where everyone was becoming rich. But McClintock was a special type of opportunist. Like the river he called home as a young man, he felt no loyalty to any border and psychologically crossed over from side to side with ease. In his search for economic and emotional security, something he yearned for as a youngster, McClintock always dreamt of lighting the world on fire with his inventions and underwater war machines. In the end, it's safe to say he surely did. Too bad the flame he lit engulfed him as well.
Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Toby Ball. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.